This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. With David Canfield. Hello. And a special guest joining us this week from The New Yorker and the author of Oscar Wars, Michael Schulman. Hello. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm a devoted listener to this podcast. We are so flattered. Um, we all have read your book. We're going to talk about Oscar Wars a little bit later. It's out next month, just in time for prime Oscar voting drama. But um, we managed to have you on in another period of high drama, which we did not know was going to be happening when <laughs> we asked you to come on the podcast, um, which is to Leslie and everything going on around that. So I think that's an appropriate place to start. Hi, this is Katie coming in to interrupt myself. As you'll hear, we had our conversation about to Leslie before the Academy Board of Governors met on Tuesday to determine that they would not revoke Andrea Riseborough's Oscar nomination, but that they did, quote, discover social media and outreach campaigning tactics that caused concern. These tactics are being addressed with the responsible parties directly. That's how the saga turned out. Uh, I think a lot of what we talked about is still relevant. That's more or less what we expected to happen. So now you know how it all turned out. So, Rebecca, I wanted to just start with you since you have been doing some reporting for us and got your hands on some of the emails that may or may not be at the heart of the scandal. What have you learned about To Leslie in the last 24 hours, Rebecca? I feel like I've been writing about this for three years, but I realized this only started four days ago. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just really complicated. Um, we have a piece up about an email that Mary McCormick sent out that does mention a a reception she held at her home for a select group of actors that didn't have a screening attached. And according to Academy guidelines, you have to have a screening attached to any sort of reception. It's a rule they put in place um, in 2016 to sort of calm down on the crazy amount of big like parties that were happening during award season. So it's a small thing that may not be an issue by the time, you know, this recording comes out, depending on what the Academy says. But I think this whole thing is sort of about the bigger conversation about what the point of these Academy guidelines are and do they need to change in the future? That seems to be more about what this drama is sparking to me, at least, is do there need to be more guidelines to sort of keep the playing field even in this situation? Or is it even possible to make an even playing field when it comes to awards? Well, it's interesting have, talking about this, having read your book, Michael, and, you know, about the way that campaigns have been clubby and all about who you know since literally the very beginning. Um, you wrote about Mary Pickford inviting the Academy um, governor. I don't think they were the governors and the influential Academy members to her house for tea in the second Oscar year. Um, does the context of having written that book give you any more perspective on the to Leslie drama? 
Well, in Mary Pickford's defense, I think that was more of a rumor that started because everyone hated her movie that she won so much, uh, Coquette, <laughs> which was her first her first talkie. She was so stagey and bad in it, and then she won uh, the second Best Actress Award. And someone at some point in history cracked, oh, I bet she brought all the judges to Pickfair back when they were judges. But the thing that I keep thinking back on is the sort of Weinstein period, the, the Miramax heyday. And, uh, you know, I hate to compare anyone, much less a lovely seeming person like Andrea Riseborough to Weinstein. But, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s, there was just this period where where Miramax kept pushing and pushing and coming up with new ways to campaign. And like this, you know, the Academy hadn't always thought to outlaw something until Weinstein did it. And then his sort of bete noir at at DreamWorks, Terry Press started pushing back and it was like this arms race. So whenever anyone came up with some new crazy tactic, it would be outlawed and then they would call, people would call it the, a Terry rule or a Harvey rule. Um, you know, for instance, um, one thing that this brought to mind was in 2003, Miramax had Gangs of New York and Weinstein got Robert Weiss, the the 88 at the time year old director of A Sound of Music and West Side Story to uh, give a testimonial and it appeared in an ad. It came out that he didn't actually write the words. It was written by a studio, a, a consultant, um, Ray Wiseman. And he also didn't know that his endorsement was going to appear in a, an ad. But it got so much backlash that the Academy had to tighten its rules against, you know, Academy members giving third party endorsements. But it's like no one had thought to really do that. And it seems to me that this whole thing is sort of a version of that with social media, which, of course, didn't exist then. And I'm curious whether the Academy will come up with more guidelines around the use of social media. But yeah, I mean... You know, it, it might be a paradigm shift in campaigning. It's obviously way too early to say whether this will have any sort of long-term impact. But you know, it just it does remind me so much of that period when there weren't so many guidelines because people hadn't thought to do a certain thing, and then once it was done, the academy had to sort of play catch up and you know start banning things. I mean, I'm terrified what AI technology is going to do for Oscar campaigning. I have no idea what what that would be, but it'll bring um, Robert Wise back from the grave to endorse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I think like with so much else in culture, no one seems to have accounted for social media, <laughs> you know. Um, and and from what I remember from the tweets, you know, that some of which were kind of copy and pasted from some sort of original text um, supporting Riceborough is. Correct me if I'm wrong, any of you, but like. None of those tweets, for example, said vote for her if you're in the Academy, right? They were just kind of getting people to urging people to see the movie. Is that right? Or was well, there was there more an explicit kind of call to action? Clearly, Richard, you're not as well versed in the Instagram of Francis Fisher. <laughs> I guess I'm not. No, no. Um, but, you know, on that score, there were a few people who outlined the logistics of the race in a way that was kind of strange and unusual. Uh, and she was one of them. She had mentioned Daniel Deadweiler and Viola Davis. I believe she called them locks along with Michelle Yeoh right. and um, Kate Blanchett, which very strongly implies vote for this person because these other people don't need your vote. And that is addressed in the rules to some degree. Um, but to your but it's only po- for people who are associated with the movie. And versus Fisher, it's unclear. Right. Directly associated. And I think that's the that's the word, the adverb that is going to be 
discussed a lot here is exactly to what degree was Francis Fisher like involved and in spreading a message and working with, I suppose, McCormick uh, and Morris, who were kind of overseeing this effort, um, which I don't think we know yet. I don't know how much the Academy will be able to know um, in that regard. Um, but I also wonder if, to your earlier point, it's it's kind of a reaction to Weinstein tactics. And there is something going on here about the staleness within the industry of FYC events and pushes and advertising that he so innovatively pushed and transformed the landscape with um, to something that was that, that gave off the appearance of giving the actors the power back and giving them the opportunity to nominate someone through sheer word of mouth and through sheer passion. Um, because if you, you know, we've reviewed some materials and there is a sense of an industry banding together for a small film with a giant heart and giving it the kind of platform that it doesn't typically get. I mean, that is undeniable that this movie getting an Oscar nomination in and of itself is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think, um, and this is what I loved about your book, Michael, was it talks so much about power, which I think is a part of award season that maybe people from the outside don't understand how valuable it is. And and I, I agree that the messaging is interesting, that this film is a grassroots campaign, a scrappy little film that had no money for advertisements in the trades. But I think when we're talking about power, we are talking about actors who have a lot of it and yep. and who are banding together with a level of influence that other people in this race maybe don't have access to. And so to me, the messaging of we're just a scrappy little Phil indie trying to get some some attention here is a little frustrating because I, I just think when you look at the people who backed this film and the people who were working behind the scenes, that's not really what was going on when you're looking at the power and not just the amount of money they spent. So it's it makes it so much more complicated. And I, yeah, I, I have very mixed feelings on it all. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's, it's sort of opened up a conversation about influence in Hollywood. And the nature of influence has changed um, in the world. I mean, influence doesn't necessarily mean having a big expensive party anymore. It could mean having a few well-placed people on social media um, saying a certain thing. I mean, what strikes me, David, about the exact way that Francis Fisher was talking as you were describing it, is that not how every awards consultant yes. talks, you know, <laughs> exactly. in their, in their, on their Zoom calls with their staff? I mean... Or us tweeting about as, you know, awards press. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's it seems to be a moment where the sort of flimsiness of the rules is coming to light because what is the difference in the end between this conversation that actors were having on social media and the conversations that highly paid, you know, consultants at Netflix have every single day? You know, it's also a moment where the conversation about the mechanics of awards season has spilled over into public view. That reminds me a lot of the Shakespeare in Love versus Saving Private Ryan campaign when, you know, so much was going on behind the scenes. There was so much enmity uh, between DreamWorks and Miramax. And suddenly everyone was writing about it. And, you know, there was this infamous Nikki Fink article in New York Magazine about everything that Miramax was supposedly doing. And it was a moment where the general public paid attention to the mechanics of Oscar campaigning, many of them for the first time. They didn't realize that there was so much going on. And 
I feel like it's a little similar right now where I keep seeing people online being like, how is it possible that a dozen celebrities can get you an Oscar campaign or like that people need to be encouraged so much to see the movies? Why don't they, why don't voters have time to see all the movies? What's going on here? What is this? And, you know, that's a really interesting moment when, when people are paying attention to the part of award season that is not about, you know, the pure merit of each movie and each performance. You know, I'm reminded of something that happened in the Shakespeare in Love campaign where um, Miramax held a cocktail party at Elaine's for Shakespeare in Love, for the director. And um, they invited some Academy members like uh, Sidney Lumet and some other people. And someone complained to the Academy that this was breaking some rule against uh, some party rule they had. Uh, the publicist Bobby Zaram had to quickly invite other people who were not in the Academy to make it technically not an, a, <laughs> you know, an Academy party. And, you know, someone I talked to from, who worked at Miramax back then told me like, what the hell? I mean, you know, everyone in Hollywood was at the time having, you know, their friends come over to their private, you know, screening rooms at, at their homes and doing this kind of thing all the time. In New York, we don't have private screening rooms in our giant houses, so we hang out at the lanes, you know? And it, it was a moment where, like, yeah, technically this was breaking some rule, but the, the rules, you know, were trying to stamp out the only things they could find, and, and there was so much else going on that's just part of the ecosystem. Yeah, and Peggy Siegel in New York was a big part of that ecosystem, too, because oh, you would yeah. go to those luncheons and dinners and screenings and whatnot, and, you know, it would be people like me who were there to just sort of maybe write about it, but mostly just kind of observe in a way and um, random other people. And then, you know, you'd have Gene Demaney in there and Celia Weston there and other kind of elder statesman Academy members of like the New York branch of the Academy. And that's what the whole event felt pointed toward. You know, everyone else was just kind of window dressing to make it just seem like a media event and not what it really was, which was putting an Academy member sitting next to a potential nominee at a dinner or a luncheon um, and having them schmooze. Um, and that, to me, always felt like part of the process. And it's interesting now that, like, obviously that only certain movies can afford that. And I'm thinking a bit more clearly about that fact um, this year. Does it feel to you like To Leslie did anything that different from that? I think it's tough because in a vacuum, the To Leslie narrative feels... Yeah, maybe there is some sort of cajoling and unfair wielding of social media clout or or whatever, or or the clout behind the verified name on social media. You know, maybe Francis Fisher or whoever else doesn't have that many followers. They don't have as many followers as Selena Gomez or whatever. But like they in within this narrow little Academy film industry thing, like they, they hold sway. But if you don't consider that, it's like, well, it's nice, you know, that it is a small movie that costs nothing to make and didn't get a ton of attention before the Spirit Awards. And, and isn't that great? But then you think, okay, well, why didn't that coalesce around Till and Daniel Deadweiler? Like, what are those factors involved? Did a lot of Academy members even watch Till, you know? And why are the people kind of advocating for smaller work like that for Alfre Woodard and Clemency a few years ago, who felt like an obvious, easy, great, worthy nominee, and then it didn't happen? So those mechanics, I think, have to look at. And, and then you kind of go right back to Francis Fisher, where it's like, even in 2022, 2023, I mean, why would you ever assume that two black actresses are locks for lead nominations at the mm, Oscars? Yeah. You know, like that's history offers no support for that supposition. Yeah. I thought the point being with Francis Fisher that she didn't actually care whether they were so long as people were voting for Andrea Riseborough. And I suppose that that's... The question is, if she's speaking in this strategist 
speak, as you were saying, Michael, like, where is that coming from? And what is different about that? Because clearly there were some conversations going on that we're just not privy to that. That's the big open question here um, that we're not aware of. Of who was talking to who behind the scenes. Right. And and exactly where were they along the rules? Because the rules can concern everything from like, uh, if you're doing a big party for the movie, it needs to be attached to a screening. That was partly out of the Seagull and Colleen Camp dinners and things like that. And if you're doing, you know, if you're referencing other nominees, it certainly cannot be in a way that is intending people to vote in another direction away from them. So these kinds of things, there are rules in place, but it's just hard to see, you know, the level of involvement in the campaign, the level of violation, the fact that these haven't really been tested, uh, all of those are really open questions. So the Academy has a lot to decide here, even if it seems very trivial and minor in particular, uh, it does speak to exactly what you were saying, Rebecca, which is like, what are the Oscars for and what are these rules for? Because the whole pitch here was David versus Goliath. And it's very strange when you start looking at a contender like Daniel Deadweiler as a Goliath, just because she has a movie until that had a substantial marketing FYC budget. Obviously, Andrea Riseborough, even if not personally, is a very well-connected actor. Between her manager, the film's director, co-stars, including you know Academy Award winners like Allison Janney, Daniel Deadweiler may have had the typical FYC push, but I don't believe she's as well-connected of an actor like that. And so power, in this case, didn't look like what we think campaign power looks like. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not still being wielded and people are being overtaken in that kind of you know, race, essentially. I'm glad you brought up um, Alfred Woodard and Clemency, Richard, and that film was directed by Chidonia Chukwu, who directed Till. But you're exactly right that that's the kind of movie that's on the two Leslie scale that had some critical acclaim. I think she also got a spirit nomination and could have used that exact same last minute push. Whereas Till, as you were saying, David, kind of had the traditional studio back campaign that we expect in this. And I was saying to you guys yesterday that I do see some weird hope, even though it's turned out this way, that 10 years ago, a movie like Till would not have gotten it. It would have not been mm-hmm. seen as, you know, quote unquote, academy friendly. Um, so I take some gratification in that, even though it didn't work out this time. Um, but I think it's proving, once again, that you can present something to the Academy over and over again as much as you want. But to convince them to vote differently and to change their expectations about what is awards worthy, it takes longer. And it's just taking longer and longer, um, despite what we want it to do. Michael, does this feel like it would be a big enough controversy for a chapter in your book if your book wasn't done already. In the sequel. <laughs> um, it's funny, you know, when the slap happened last year, everyone kept saying to me, oh, you're going to have to add a chapter to the book. And I was like, it's done. It's done. I have. I actually turned it in. The first. I turned in the first uh, draft of it, not the first draft, like my first draft to the editor last February. And then I was sort of unsettled about the... Um, I wrote it the, the afterward, the epilogue, and I didn't love it. I knew I wanted to change it. And then I went to the Oscars. This lab happened. And I was like, oh, here's my ending. Thank you. <laughs> I but, believe you your know. ending takes place at the Vanity Fair Oscar party, a venue we're all familiar it with. It certainly does. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where I got to watch Will Smith getting jiggy with it with his Oscar. I mean, yep. what a surreal way to end my night. Um, yeah. It certainly does. I don't know. Um, I think... Uh, like, to me, you never really know what the story of Oscar season was until at least it's over. And even then, to me, it takes a couple of years. Even looking back at very recent history, like 2017, I saw so many things in it that I didn't see at the time. I mean, 
honestly, guys, what part of what I did for that is re-listen to this podcast oh my for God. that entire year. <laughs> it I spent is like wild. a week. <laughs> I spent a, like a week just sort of I would listen to a couple episodes just to like remember what the chronology of things happening was. Like when was the first time that you guys brought up La La Land or Moonlight, you know? When was the um Birth of a Nation scandal happening. You know, like just to, if you go back and look at the chronology of, of when, when things happened, certain things, when, when the election happened in 2016, you know, the fact that Sundance was happening at the same time as the Oscar So White viral stuff, and that that's where uh, Birth of a Nation premiered and got a huge, uh, mm-hmm. you know, acquisition, because um, it seemed like a, a sort of Oscar So White antidote. And then months later just imploded obviously so i don't know th- th- i guess it's a roundabout way of saying i don't know if this is a big enough thing but i certainly as a, as a lover of uh, oscar drama and chaos i'm enjoying it <laughs> but i think you've gotten in there a good advertisement for the book i mean in in that like in reading it obviously the particular granulars of like each race that you highlight in each chapter but there's so much history around it you know because it's not just about the Oscar race and these five actors or these five movies. It's about the culture at large to be, you know, a little trite, I guess. But um, I found that all fascinating. I mean, I'm glad that you, in in the chapter about the envelope gate uh, in 2017, that mm-hmm. you you did get a reference to Dick Poop in there, which I appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is, you know, that's a huge history from that from that year. Um, well, in many also, ways, the, in many ways, the my year of dicks. Uh, it was a, <laughs> right. a sequel. Exactly, exactly. Um, but something I, you know, I also found fascinating. You you brought up the Shakespeare in Love, Saving Private Ryan year, um, which also serves as this nice kind of shorthand history of like the beginning of DreamWorks, um, which was the collaboration between Steven Spielberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and David Geffen that never really lived up to its um, its beginnings. You know, it was sort of touted as this big new thing that and then kind of never quite got off the ground in the way that they hoped, I think. But the way you describe it in the book, and, and I have no doubt it's accurate, it sounds like fucking Silicon Valley. Like everyone just hangs out at the office and no one wears suits and it's free food and it's free that it's all these perks. And like, absolutely, just, absolutely. Yeah. It's just a reminder that really nothing is really new. <laughs> like we're just <laughs> repeating the same stuff. Well, so many people I talked to about early DreamWorks just talked to me about the snacks. And they you know, they were like there's a, there was a cook on hand who would bring freshly baked chocolate chip cookies into your <laughs> meetings and, you know, there was a video game room where Steven Spielberg would sit and play video games. And I was like this just this sounds like the beginning of, you know, Silicon Valley office culture, you know, in in mid 90s. What what interested me so much about going back to the Shakespeare in Love, Saving Private Ryan year, it's basically remembered in this way that gets boiled down to like Harvey Weinstein cheated and the wrong movie won. And I found it so much more complicated than that. Uh, It's the longest chapter in the book. That's how complicated I found it. (laughs) And um, part of what was really fascinating to look at is the other side of the race, which is the DreamWorks side, the Saving Private Ryan side. And why is it that this campaign, this Harvey Weinstein campaign of all his campaigns got everyone into such a, a, a frenzy. And a big part of it was that DreamWorks had started out as this sort of utopian idea. These three machers in Hollywood were teaming up to create the studio, the multimedia studio of the future. They were on the cover of Time magazine before the thing even had, you know, a name. And then they just didn't have any big movies come out. You know, they had sort of, they had like Mouse Hunt and they had, um, you know, Peacemaker, which was sort of fine. 
Uh, and then they had their first Spielberg movie, which was Amistad. And that sort of, that didn't have an Oscar life. So when Saving Private Ryan came along, it was a huge critical hit. It was a huge box office hit. It was this movie that was so personal for Spielberg because it was about his father's generation, about his relationship with World War II. I'm sure some of this is at this point sounding familiar. It's a Spielberg movie that is about Spielberg. About, and it's like, a, a pay attention to this one. This is a special Spielberg movie. It's telling you something about him. And so it was just widely presumed for many, many months because it came out in the summer of 98 to be the front runner. So when so when Shakespeare and Love came along at the end of the year out of nowhere, and it was this sort of fluffy, light, romantic piece from, of all people, Harvey Weinstein, who people just personally did not like, and then mounted this sort of guerrilla warfare campaign, you know, it just bothered the people at DreamWorks so much because they felt like they felt like they had it in the bag, essentially. And they felt like this movie was like the mascot for the whole company. It was the thing that finally made DreamWorks work. It was what they had all been dreaming about, doing this something like this, this important big Spielberg movie. So the feeling was just that Weinstein had taken it from them using the kind of campaign tactics that then the Academy had to start banning. Because again, not to compare the lovely uh, Andrea Riseborough to uh, the horrible Harvey Weinstein, but um, whenever there's a kind of paradigm shift in the Oscars or in the industry or in life, you know, it, it just, it gets people really riled up. And of course, part of what I wanted to do with that story also is nail down exactly how this thing started about negative campaigning, because people had always always said Harvey was campaigning against Saving Private Ryan and saying that, oh, it's just good for the first 20 minutes, and then it just becomes a standard World War II movie. And then Weinstein, of course, denied, 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 denied. He know, I would never do that. I loved Saving Private Ryan. Um, I would never, ever negative campaign. I kind of figured out, I found at least one person who told me, oh yeah, Harvey told that to me. Uh, I told it to Terry Press at DreamWorks and that is what got sparked this whole thing. And that person um, was Lynn Hirschberg, the, who was covering the race for the New York Times. Who lived for drama, apparently. What a great way to <laughs> stir the pot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but even people who worked at Miramax at the time, I had to tell them like, oh yeah, no, this, he, he was, you know, they, they, they believed that they were being smeared in the press. People who worked on that campaign on Shakespeare in Love would tell me, oh no, we, we didn't negative campaign. We knew that it was against the rules. We would never do that. And I had to go back to some of them and be like, well, apparently Weinstein himself was telling this to Lynn Hirschberg and that's how it got back to DreamWorks. And from that point on, it was just the Spanish Civil War. They're all still so traumatized. All these people are so traumatized by it. You know, it was it was like 24 years ago. What now? And you know, they have not healed. <laughs> I'm Bobby Finger, and I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, "Who the heck is that?" Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. 
the fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company, and why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment, and if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Um, I wanted to ask about the negative campaigning thing, because I think um, we undeniably live in a different era. Like, you're just not going to see people like taking out attack ads or spreading rumors in the same way that Harvey would. Um, but Rebecca, was we were starting to hear the two Leslie stuff. I think we were all really on watch for it being a smear campaign, for it being someone, a competitor, seeing Andrew Rice as a threat. Are you getting any sense of that in what you're still hearing about it? Do you feel like this is people, like other competitors and best actors trying to undermine it? Or is it different than that? I think it's a mix. <laughs> I think I I mean, I would say the award strategists who have run the more traditional campaigns are pleased that this is being um, investigated. But from what I can tell, talking to both voters and, you know, sort of award strategists and insiders, there are a lot of feelings that as silly as some of these rules may seem, they they were put in for a reason. And as Michael is saying, a lot of them were put in as a reaction to things that have gone on in the past. And so if there are rules to play by, people do feel like you have to play by the ones that are there. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say there are not certain people that are stoking the fire here on the, <laughs> on the Whisper campaign, but um, it does seem to be enough of a concern that the Academy would release a statement, you know, basically the day that it this buzz really started to to grow. So, yeah. um, you know, it puts the Academy in a complicated situation. They have to be the sort of like watchdog of Hollywood, which is like, how does anyone take on that responsibility um, and do it well? So, you know, I don't envy them for that, but uh, it does feel like there is a, a genuine concern about this campaign. Am I wrong in interpreting it that like the more I read about it, it feels like Riceboro actually wasn't really involved in this. Like, I mean, obviously she was to some extent, but this seems more like a Mary McCormick-Morris joint, right? And that makes me feel like bad for Riceboro in a way because it's like she got totally dragged into this without um, actually asking for it in a way. Yeah, I don't think this is an actor who, you know, devised this (laughs) incredibly complex guerrilla campaign for herself uh, only to see a blow up in her face. I think... From her perspective, there was a lot of genuine, sudden enthusiasm for this movie and this performance that was largely orchestrated by her director and her director's wife. Um, And she participated as she was told she needed to participate and was happy to participate uh, only for it to become this. So, yeah, I I think it's a really unfortunate situation for her and uh, not one... (laughs) I would wish on an actor who gives a lot of great performances and who has never seemed to me to be particularly awards thirsty. Although I suppose you never really know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's 
it's that I find quite sad um, and well, disappointing, maybe. I mean, David, you know, she might not seem awards thirsty, but as as this podcast was nominated for a Webby a couple years ago, and I didn't think I cared about awards, but all of a what sudden, what happened to you, Richard? I was like, <laughs> let's win that Webby. We did not win that Webby. But, yeah, I mean, we needed to look, hire better you, strategists. I think the green monster can come for us all. You know, that's all I'm saying. one um, question that's you know been posed to me and that I've seen posed online repeatedly since this really blew up is, you know, what if Netflix did something like this? Or what if um, MGM did? Like, what if the tactics that this campaign needed to use to get attention were used by a studio that, first of all, would get not a slap on the wrist, but would get, you know, disciplined far more quickly. But, you know, if the same rules applied to them and they were able to do that kind of thing, it it takes on a very different meaning and it has a, the implications for that um, are pretty severe, which is why I think you are going to see some Academy action. Um, I spoke with the last person who was disqualified for a nomination, uh, Bruce Broughton, uh, who composed, uh, who wrote the song Alone Yet Not Alone. And he was a former Academy governor. Um, he didn't even break any rules uh, according to what the rules were, but he his nomination was rescinded really to make a statement about a well-connected uh, composer, Academy veteran, um, essentially using his connections to bring awareness to his tiny movie. And it was a tiny movie. And he knew what he was doing was not popular or even kosher, but he knew he wasn't breaking any rules. Um, but that didn't matter. And that kind of statement is made by the Academy because it has to be heard by those who do have the power. And that's kind of where we're at right now is how do these things get replicated? That's that's certainly a danger. And it again reminds me of the Weinstein thing because part of what I realized about the meaning of that Shakespeare in Love year is that it created an arms race, you know? In the, in, in the minds of Miramax people, they were the underdogs, they were the New York people, they were the indie people. Yeah, exactly. And they had to do everything they were doing because they were trying to open this big movie about Shakespeare on screens. And I think that, you know, the sort of underdog mentality was drilled into them so much that they kind of lost sight of the fact that they were, you know, not that by the end of the 90s. But the following year... DreamWorks said, well, we're not, we're not letting that happen again. And so they took everything that they saw Harvey Weinstein doing and did it for American Beauty and won. And then they did it the next year for Gladiator and won again. And so it was a, a complete arms race. And uh, that's how things balloon. You know, originally, you know, Miramax was the only one hiring like a slew of campaign consultants, like basically everyone he could find, he hired. Um, and the studios didn't, think they needed that because they had the budget to place ads and, you know, do whatever. Once they realized that Miramax had done it and it worked and it, you know, quote unquote, stole this Oscar from Saving Private Ryan, then suddenly every big studio needed, a, you know, a SWAT team of of consultants. And that's how you get the growth of, a, of an ecosystem, so I don't know. I, I don't think that's going to happen with this, where everyone is going to be <laughs> doing this exact same thing. I oh, mean, you don't think all actors are going to ask their publicists to email everyone they know? Like, I mean, the rules <laughs> might change, but like, it does seem like give me a two Leslie campaign is something many people will ask for. 
I don't know. Maybe. I mean, won't it be so obvious, though? I, I think we're going to find out when it the voting window once. is open, like next month, we're going to find out. Because <laughs> if these nominees are going to do it, they might as well do it for the voting period, right? Yeah. That's when she did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do love that we can talk about the entirety of Michael's book entirely through the prism. Of <laughs> it feels very, very appropriate. You threaded your Brooke Pomo through the current drama. This is very effective. All the listeners will listen to every bit of it. <laughs> but but to that point, I mean, one of my favorite parts of, of your book, Michael, is when you talk about Black acting Oscar winners and the sort of false promise that many of those moments um, left in their wake. I'm curious how you see if you see this whole situation fitting into that, given what we were saying earlier, and given the fact that, to your point, Katie, movies like The Woman King and Till are examples of movies that Hollywood would not have made, at least on that scale, not so long ago. Well, I mean, the thing that's really glaring to me is that, incredibly, there has not been another Black actress winner in Best Actress since Halle Berry. And, you know, I I write about that win and that campaign and sort of sort of what was going on around it. Um, turns out it was sort of a proxy war between Weinstein and Oprah, which I did not realize. And really, you know, it's, it's, it's really fascinating to go and look at it as a, as a campaign fight between uh, Halle Berry in Monsters Ball and Sissy Spacek in, in the bedroom, Todd Field movie, everything is coming back around. Um, <laughs> but famously in her speech, Berry said, you know, tonight, is opening a door. And then by 2016, when, you know, Oscars the White was trending, she said, you know, I thought it was opening a door and it it wasn't. I thought this moment was bigger than me. And it turns out maybe it wasn't. So, you know, I think it's, it's really striking that it's been 21 years now and there hasn't been another Best Actress of Color. There, you know, maybe Michelle Yeoh will be another Best Actress of Color and the first Asian winner in the in the in the category. But there certainly isn't going to be a, another Black Best Actress winner this year. I don't know. I mean, it, looking back at the, you know, I sort of weave the stories of Hattie McDaniel, Sidney Poitier, and and Barry over, you know, across really a, a century, and there were so many parallels that jumped out at me. Yeah. Um, you know, for each of them. It was this historic win that was hugely uh, lauded and was uh, each sort of iconic in their own way and um, and remembered. And yet, for each of them, it was kind of this isolating, fraught turning point in their lives. And all three had like really, really difficult career problems right after that, because in a way they were sort of... I don't know, they were like trapped in amber or something. It was, you know, Hattie McDaniel had to constantly uh, defend herself playing, you know, more maid roles, which was all she was getting offered after Gone with the Wind. Sidney Poitier, shockingly, you know, he won for Lilies of the Field and shockingly didn't get nominated for, you know, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner or In the Heat of the Night and sort of quickly went out of fashion um, in in the late 60s, early 70s. And then Halle Berry just sort of, you know, did Catwoman next. So none of them felt really supported by the industry after they won this historic award, in part because it was so spread out. You know, this was, you know, these are stories that happened decades and decades apart. And uh, Hollywood is, of course, very great at optics and uh, not so great at at other things. And the, the optics of each of those wins is sort of indelible. And yet when you look closely at sort of how the person experienced them, um, not as great. 
Well, and what you write at the end of that chapter is that like something larger had to change and then that it did. And then in the next chapter about the moonlight, you're kind of talking about the the transformations in the membership. And I keep thinking about that when it comes to who is going to win Best Actress and what happens now to two Leslie, because you've got 10,000 Academy members spread all over the globe. Like that clubbiness that made it possible for Andrew Risebo to, to get nominated doesn't exist on that larger scale. And I do think that is still to the benefit of who winds up winning Oscars. The nominations process still has its challenges like this, but the the more widespread Academy is getting us in a better place in that direction, I think. I hope. I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 I worry I, you're like so pessimistic about the Oscars now, Rebecca. This has been a rough week. No. <laughs> I mean, Michael's book reminded me about a lot of the progress that's been made, but I, I, I do think there's no way the Academy itself as a, as a governing body can fix the systemic issues that are even hard to describe for us, you know, when you look at who gets nominated and who wins. And, and yeah, that statistic that only one woman of color has ever won lead actress, just like I think about that every single year because mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. just those are the results that speak more to the systemic issues of what movies get greenlit, what stars get to lead films and, and things like that that are not the Academy's responsibility to fix um, and just show there is there's still a long way to go, I think. And not to be a downer on this podcast, I apologize. It is okay to be a downer. We are here to lovingly critique the Oscars whenever we need to. <laughs> I'm critiquing all of Hollywood today. Katie. Yeah, okay. Os- it's not the Oscars' fault. <laughs> We're going broad. Sorry, go ahead, Richard. Well, I was just kidding. In terms of optics, like more women of color, people of color have won acting Oscars, but they've been in supporting, you know, yep. and for great performances. I mean, you could make the argument that Viola Davis could have run in lead and beat Emma Stone, um, you know, for Fences. Um, It all goes back to that year somehow, 2016. It does, yeah. (laughs) But like, I know it's it's not being said explicitly by one voice, but like, in aggregate, you could sort of see a thing of like, yeah, great in supporting roles, you know, Mm -hmm. we're not there on on, on the lead stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and here, and I think that some of the frustration about the Riseboro campaign um, and the success of it really has nothing to do with Riseboro specifically, that movie specifically. It's more like here we had what looked to be shaping up to be a year when three of the five Best Actress nominees were people of color, um, with at least two of them in good position to potentially win. And then this thing comes along, and then Ana de Armas, who kind of has escaped a lot of this discourse, comes along and... Um, now we're back to what feels like it, you know, usually has in the years past, you know, and um, I don't know, I, I think that I didn't see this being a sort of negatively flux year for the Academy, because things seem to be shaping up a bit better. And now all of a sudden, I think that they're cast back into pre slap controversy, you know, and um, that I'm sure they're not happy about that. Well, I think the aggregate thing is important because I don't want us to be like, oh, well, Angela Bassett's going to win in Supporting Actress, which is where actresses of color go. Like, we're all excited for Angela Bassett to probably win Best Supporting Actress Oscar. It's about the sweep of history and not an individual year, as always with the Oscars. Angela Bassett, who, of course, could have been the first black actress to win uh, Best Actress had she won for What's Love Got to Do With It? Did she lose to Holly Hunter in the piano? She did, Um, yeah. yeah. Which was a Weinstein thing. Sure was. <laughs> <laughs> Early days. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. 
Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. So, Michael, we've talked about your book a lot, but I did want to just ask you really broadly, because I think you might believe what I believe, that any given Oscar year can make an entire book chapter. Like, there is always a story to tell and always a whole grand sweep of it. Um, So is that, in fact, the way that you think? And then how did you manage to pick, what, 10 individual years to to sum it all up? Um, I would say not exactly. I think there's some that are juicier than others. And uh, the way this book really started is that I did a longer piece for The New Yorker in 2017, just about the Academy navigating the post-Oscars So White landscape. And I went out to Hollywood and spent time with Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who was the first Black president and, and, and in charge at the time. And she sort of bore the brunt of a lot of the backlash to the diversity initiative. And um, I had always been like an Oscar lover and uh, obsessive, but that really, writing that piece really helped me learn about the history of the Academy and things that had come before that were like this, like, you know, Gregory Peck's membership updating in the, in the, in the early seventies. And, um, and then after that, I went to the Oscars in person for the first time. Uh, I was sitting in the press room and experienced Envelope Gate there. And to me, it was just this incredible Hollywood twist ending to this saga that had taken place over the previous year. And I sort of saw it as this, like, oh, this is like an epic tale about this upheaval in the industry and in America against the backdrop of Trump coming to power, you know, that this that this racial reckoning happened in Hollywood at the same time. Um, so that sort of was the seed of of the approach to the book. You know, there there are plenty of, of books that exist that sort of take you through every single year, who won, what records were set. But I really wanted to just choose the, the the concept was okay. Choose about a dozen, and go really deep on them. And you know, could I make the Oscars of 1942 feel as spontaneous and unpredictable and crazy and dramatic as every year does to us as we're experiencing them? Um, if it's sort of told in this, you know, with all the twists and turns for the reader. So that was really the fun part, which was going through all 90-something years of Oscar history and just seeing where something would be really juicy, you know? So for instance, like 1942, uh, I didn't have a 40s chapter at first, and I basically wanted one for every decade at least. And when I looked at that year, I saw, oh gosh, there are three gigantic, crazy things that happened that, that one year. One was that Citizen Kane lost. Another was that it was two and a half months after Pearl Harbor, And a third was that two sisters who hated each other were nominated in Best Actress (laughs) against each other. And one of them won, of course, this being Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland. So I just thought, okay, this is like an incredible like TV episode where there's like an A, B and C plot. And the year before and after that, interesting stuff happened. But that is just like this overwhelming braiding of dramatic stories that sort of will amount to more than the sum of their parts. Well, I can't wait for the um, limited series adaptation then, where we get the TV episode that's about the about Orson Welles suing somewhere and onward and upward. You've given me uh, even something else to look forward to. <laughs> Well, that does it uh, for today's episode. You can find us at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. That's a new handle. Go follow us. Um, and you can find us on Twitter on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. 
Rylaws, and Rebecca, Becca M. Ford, and David, David Canfield 97, and Michael Schumann. You can promote yourself on Twitter and also your book and anything else. Uh, free reign. Sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter at MJ Schulman. Uh, my work is at The New Yorker, and Oscar Wars is uh, out February 21st. And everyone should go buy it. It is a great read. I should say the great subtitle of the movie, uh, the, of the book, is A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears, which, you know, <laughs> that doesn't sell it. I don't know what does. We're going to steal that as a subtitle for this podcast, too, yeah, unfortunately. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, well, thanks all for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best way to close out our podcast goes to Michael Schulman. Oh, here's my ending. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.